This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 372, October the 4th, 1996. In this session, Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rushdoony, and I will be discussing power for good or for evil, question mark. Now, the title doesn't really explain what our concern is. So bear with me while I give you an introduction to it. After World War II, a scholar, Herbert J. Storing, S-T-O-R-I-N-G, began to collect the uh, anti-federalist writings. Now, these were of considerable interest. Very early at the Constitutional Convention, hostility to what the framers were doing did develop. Some of those who expressed the hostility were not the best men to do it. One of them was a man whose name was Luther Martin. And Luther Martin, in some ways, was perceptive, but he was also not the most uh, diplomatic and agreeable of persons. So while he was very vocal about his opinions, they were not as influential as they should have been. Others who subsequently became anti-federalists were very prominent men, like, for example, Patrick Henry. Now, why were they anti-federalist? Well, Storing collected these papers which had been neglected almost since the day they were written. I did uh, read some of them as a student and then after World War II, but uh, by and large, until Storing gave attention to them, they were neglected. He collected, I think it was in three volumes, the Anti-Federalist Papers, wrote an introduction to it, which the University of Chicago Press subsequently uh, reprinted as a separate paperback. And in the course of it, what... Uh, Dr. Storing uh, did was to analyze the problems as both sides sought. Now, we're going to concentrate tonight on one particular thing and generalize beyond the uh, Constitution. The men who wanted the Constitution had come together with a very deep concern about the future of the country. They saw that the Articles of Confederation provided for too weak a government, so that the United States under the Articles of Confederation seemed to be floundering. They needed a strong state, they felt, to protect them, to safeguard their interests, 
to make sure as faced with the British to the north, the French and the Spanish to the south, they would not be caught in a squeeze between these great powers. Their concern was a valid one. However, what the uh, anti-federalists called attention to was this. You say you want more power in the federal government in order to be able to do more good. But do you realize when you create such a power, you're also creating the power to do evil? Well, this tells you why this is a relevant subject today and why it is that Storing's introduction, which uh, cites this problem, among others, has been uh, reprinted in recent years, in 1981, as a matter of fact. And it is very uh, well worth reading. The entire uh, anti-federalist papers, I believe they were six volumes, come to think of it, give us many, many arguments, pro and con, on this or that issue. But this is one that was never fully settled the power to do good in a world of sinful men can also be the power to do evil. And all we have to do is to look at Washington today, Washington today to realize that the fears of the anti-federalists are being realized. Well, with that introduction, Andrew, do you want to carry on for a while? Well, for a minute, uh, there should always be limits on power. Uh, and, of course, there were good men on both sides, but the Anti-Federalists had a very good uh, case there, and they certainly seemed to be prescient. As you said, Rush, looking at what has happened today and the uh, centralization of, of power in Washington, D.C., an important thing to note is that before the Civil War, people would use the plural verb with United States yes. and say United States are... Uh, because of this great consolidation and centralization of power, though, uh, states' rights is something that has just gone by the wayside, especially as a result of the Civil War. Uh, biblically, the idea of authority in, a, in the political sphere is largely localism, and you can read about it in Deuteronomy, I believe, chapter 1, and there's an appellate system of courts there. But for the most part, a political authority should be on the local level. I think, Rush, you pointed out in, was it this independent republic about county authority? Yes, yes. Uh, just a vital idea, and I hope those of you listening, if you don't have the book, will obtain it and read that. Also a chapter in the Feshrift by Howard Phillips on politics and yes. localism that's very valuable. But um, these are vital issues, and um, we've, we ourselves have gone by the wayside in many ways because of this, this problem. Uh, Something I was recalling when you read that is the words of Cotton Mather I've often recalled. He said something to effect, and I think this is fairly close, that we should give no more power to men than we would have them use for use them they will, something to that effect. Men like power. Men have always enjoyed power. And the most dangerous kind of power 
in the hands of men or men who think they're using that power for good because then they think there are no moral limits to what they should be doing. Yes. And it's characteristic of the modern state that they're very, it's very self-righteous that they think they are doing Absolutely. good by their own definition. And at the heart of the problem of all powerful government is humanism. Once you say that the, the answer lies in man, inevitably, whether it is a dictator or a, a military regime or a king or a parliament or a president, that the responsibility always goes to the top. The highest right. collective voice of men is always inevitably a statist entity. There's, anarchy doesn't work and everyone realizes it, mm -hmm. so that's, it's a state that always steps in to speak in the name of the people. And despite that, though, uh, we needed a, a stronger government than we had at the time. That's right. We had problems immediately, including the question of the Supreme Court. And the, does the Supreme Court, that was one of the very earliest mm -hmm. things, I believe that was in maybe Adams' administration, or I yes. think it came very early, does the Supreme Court have the right to speak authoritatively? Uh, uh, who is the ultimate authority in yes. the government? Well, it, it, it sort of devolved on the Supreme Court to declare something, a law passed by the Congress, unconstitutional. Yeah. I neglected <clears throat> to say that the title of uh, Dr. Herbert J. Storing's uh, introduction to his six-volume set is titled, What the Anti-Federalists Were For. I don't think it's in print any longer, but you might run across it in some used bookstore. Now, we have seen a steady growth of power, and Mark cited uh, a very fine statement from Cotton Mather, he also said, every horse will know the length of his tether by morning. <laughs> yes. In other words, a horse will see as far as it can go uh, immediately. It will work to see how length the tether is wherever it is tied, what it can reach. Well, this is interesting because a horse is tethered at night to rest for the night, but he'll still test the length of its tether. Well, so do people. A child will test you to see what it can get away with. And uh, it's a part of sinful human nature to push, to see how far we can go and what powers we have. Well, today we have a federal government which is really unlimited in its powers because in one area after another it is able to act without legislative authority. All the bureaucracy is beyond control. It is not responsible to the people. The bureaucracy has its own courts. 
and you could be tried and stripped of your property in a a bureaucratic court by judges that have no responsibility to the people, no relationship to them. So that the power to do good has become increasingly the power to do evil. And as Mark indicated, the most dangerous civil governments are those that want to act virtuously. It's not the responsibility of civil government to be, quote, virtuous. It's the responsibility to enforce the law of God. And that, of course, is very limited uh, biblically. But when the civil government gets in the business of trying to make people good, of course, it's trying to replace the church and especially the family. And then, of course, we get the paternalistic state like we have today. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's particularly evil. We don't need a virtuous state. We need a just, a biblically just state. Virtue is in the hands of God, and in a derivative sense, in the hands of individuals and, and the family and the church, not the state. But it's inevitable when you have a people who are not virtuous, that the, then the, state is, the state's going to step in and, and define it. Of course. That's precisely correct. Well, we have a problem here in that the uh, world since Hegel has a totally different idea of morality. Before Hegel, morality was God-given. It was God's law that gave you the foundations of morality. You might not like God's law, but you recognize that that was the source of morality in society. But with Hegel, a revolution occurred. The state became the source of morality. Now, of course, this was implicit in things earlier, as in the French Revolution. But with Hegel, the state became the embodiment as well as the source of morality. This meant that you no longer looked for morality from God. It meant also that the power of the state was a moral force. That's right. And uh, this is why, in the Marxist form, the state could do no wrong. That's right. And this was going back to ancient paganism. In the book of uh, Genesis, for example, we have Joseph accused and convicted of attempted rape. Later he becomes the prime minister or the grand vizier of the whole of Egypt answerable only to Pharaoh. And yet the interesting thing we have to remember is that Joseph almost certainly lived the rest of his life as a convicted man, convicted for attempted rape, never removed from his record because that would be to admit that Pharaoh could do wrong. That was impossible. And we have all kinds of problems like that today. For example, in the Gulf War, we had a great many servicemen who came back shattered in health. The Gulf War Syndrome, it was called. It was declared to be psychological. But here were men no longer able to function. They had definitely physiological consequences to their condition. 
But once the federal government declared this was not an actual ailment, and for whatever other reasons, right. uh, perhaps because they didn't want to reveal some of the things about that war and the use of chemicals. At any rate, they've not backed down, and these men continue to suffer without compensation or any kind of benefits. Now, this is a part of the process whereby the state, as the embodiment of morality, can do no wrong. This was true of the Soviet Union. They never did wrong. They could not do wrong. It's interesting you would say that, Rush. I just finished a book, Mikhail Heller's book, Cogs in the Wheel, The Formation of Soviet Man, in which he cites some of these people. Uh, what is morality? Morality is what the state says it is. Yes. Morality is what the party says it is. So they said, the Soviets said, don't come to us, you Western powers, barking about morality. Uh, morality is what we say it is. And, of course, the Western powers were hypocritical because mm-hmm. they had abandoned biblical law and the Christian faith. So how could they come shake their fi- uh, finger in the face of the Soviet Union and be sanctimonious because neither, both were relativists. Uh, you get rid of biblical law and then you don't have anything to stand on. The state does rule then uh, and become the index for morality. Well, in the biblical perspective, all power belongs to God. That's right. And God is inescapably all righteous, all just, all holy. Well, what we're seeing is that the modern state is claiming the same thing. That's right. It is claiming that what it does is good, that its intentions are moral. We are moving steadily to the same position as the Soviet Union. That's right. Yeah, Robespierre saw that the basis of a secular state requires what did he call the supreme legislator. Someone yes. has to speak the word. Yes. And, of course, in a secular situation, and that is in a strong state, it's the state that speaks the word. Well, one of the interesting things is that uh, before the French Revolution, a great deal of thinking prepared the way by seeing the state as the necessary agent to accomplish good. Not the church, not God, but the state. On top of that, uh, some of the thinkers, like Concordet, held that true knowledge is measurement. Therefore, those who truly had knowledge were the scientists. This meant, in time, what Karl Marx said it did, that the solution to man's problems had to be in the scientific socialist state, a state of experts. Well, of course, the uh, leaders in the Marxist states have not been scientists. They've controlled the scientists, but technically it's uh, held to be, in every instance, a scientific socialist state. Well, now, if it is scientific, it is a government of experts. This means that in spite of the facade of democracy, all over the world as we move towards this Hegelian dream, the people are less and less and the experts are everything. 
most of the law that we are under in the United States is administrative and bureaucratic law. It is not congressional law. Not that I think congressional law is that good, but the people less and less make the laws. Bureaucratic fiats do. And if Congress doesn't give the bureaucracy what it wants, it proceeds on its own to do precisely the things it demands need to be done. So that the power to do good and the power to do evil are becoming one and the same thing. By definition, the state sees itself as the power that does good. And whatever we call evil is a part of that power and they do not see it as evil. We don't understand their benevolence. Which really is to say, as you pointed out, Rush, the state wants to play God. Yes. Because God is the only one that has that authority. God has the authority, ultimately, to say what is right and what is wrong, yes. to establish standards of morality, and to uh, eternally judge uh, the wicked and decide what is, is right and wrong and so forth. Well, now the state wants to play God and to be vested with that divine role, and that has to be opposed to the uttermost. One of the consequences of this is that... Uh, the men Storing wrote about are now forgotten and uh, nobody knows about Luther Martin nor about some of the other men who wrote at the time. When I went to school, Patrick Henry was still an important figure and you didn't go through school without learning something from Patrick Henry by heart. Now Patrick Henry is not known by uh, school children outside of Christian schools. That's right. Very few know of him. He's a forgotten man because yes. he belongs to a current Calvinistic, very much against the centralization of power and opposed to the uh, centralism that he feared was going to come with a constitution. I should mention that I think it was three or four years ago Sprinkle Publications republished Henry's works. Yes. They may still be in print. And a good little introduction to Henry that I just saw oh, several months ago was written by Archie Jones and the group in is it Massachusetts? What's it called? Um, the publisher. I'm sorry, I can't remember the Mayflower name. Mayflower. Yes, uh, yes, that group uh, doing a lot of good things as far as um, uh, biographies and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. But you're right, he's largely a forgotten figure and a thoroughly Christian man. Yes. Well, we have in uh, the Constitutional Convention and in the debates that followed a very, very important event because key issues were discussed. They haven't gone away. That's right. Now, a good introdu uh, introduction to the convention and the aftermath from a pro-constitutional perspective is Bancroft's uh, The Constitutional Convention in two volumes. 
the work by storing, of course, gives us the other side, which does not mean that storing agreed with the anti-federalist position. I would suspect he did not. He simply felt that it was time that the whole position was aired. It's interesting, the title, that what the anti-federalists were for, because usually one of the standard arguments of why they, they lost or why they, they had nothing to offer is because they had nothing. They had no other, there was only one constitution offered for ratification. Therefore, we needed something. We, and they had no alternative yeah. plan, which, and that's used constantly to this day. Yeah. If uh, the, the, the party in power has a tax plan or a health care plan or something, it's, well, you don't have a plan, therefore, yeah. you have no right to oppose our plan. It's yeah. better something than nothing. It's, it's an argument that doesn't make much sense. It didn't make much sense then, and it never no. does make sense. Well, they believe much more in states' rights. And um, I think that's something that uh, we hope will be revived in the future in this country, rather than a strong, centralized, bureaucratic civil government. States' rights, I think, uh, could be the wave of the future, and confederation. And we don't give it the anti-federalists enough credit. We have to remember one of the uh, writers of the Federalist Papers, which are ra- a brilliant. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a brilliant document, and because it presented a lot of the problems and a lot of the, the reasoning why certain provisions were in the Constitution mm-hmm. and, and defended them, uh, a lot of the specific points. But Alexander Hamilton was one of the right, main writers of the, of the who, who was one of the big. He believed in a powerful government, oh, yes. very powerful, more yes. powerful even than the Constitution really yeah. provided for. And yeah. he did expand as, as Secretary of the Treasury. He, he was in Washington's administration. He immediately ex- took uh, initiative. He assumed the, the state's debts, which meant that people in some of the states had paid off their war debts. He assumed state debts and made everyone responsible That's for right. the debts of some. Exactly. And that was very early thought to be a totally inappropriate use of power in making some people pay for the debts of others. Yes. That's right. Well, we need to recognize, too, that although not all men on either side were Christians, uh, Christian thought did tend to shape the argument. And one has only to read the Federalist Papers or the Anti-Federalist Papers, both of them, to see how that historic Christianity influenced the way of thinking of, of both of, uh, on those on both sides, even though their arguments were not always sound. Well, <clears throat> the... Anti-Federalists have not been done justice and Storing's title calls attention to the fact because he says in the title what the Anti-Federalists were for, not against. Their attitude can be characterized by some as negative because they opposed the Constitution. But they did have some very, very uh, fundamental things that they favored. So negation was not basic to their position. Uh, it just happened that the debate put them uh, in the negative position. But basically, they were uh, positive in their orientation. We have to recognize anti-federalism is back again because there's a strong movement to 
uh, restore the relevance of the Tenth Amendment. That's right. And more and more people in the past year or two have been citing the relevance uh, of that amendment, and I don't think that uh, is going to go away. Also, the fact that the federal government is not able financially to overwhelm the states as it once did and is, ha- is having to withdraw in certain areas right. is going to give the states an opportunity perhaps to recoup some of their power. I'd like to go back to Storing's book and uh, cite something. He comments on page 40 that the uh, real Democrats in our modern sense were very few at that time. However, he says, and I quote, the anti-federalists were typically more democratic than the federalists in the specific sense that they were less likely to see majority faction as the most dangerous and likely evil of popular government. They were inclined to think with Patrick Henry that harm is more often done by the tyranny of the rulers than by the licentiousness of the people. Moreover, so far as there may be a threat of licentiousness, it is to be met in the same way fundamentally as the threat of tyranny by the alert public-spiritedness of the small, homogeneous, self-governing community. Unquote. Uh, Then this, which I think is very, very interesting. Storing quotes, one of the anti-federalists, and this is a quotation, the strongest principle of union resides within our domestic walls. The ties of the parent exceed that of any other. As we depart from home, the next general principle of union is amongst citizens of the same state, where acquaintance, habits, and fortunes nourish affection and attachment. Enlarge the circle still further, And as citizens of different states, though we acknowledge the same national denomination, we lose the ties of acquaintance, habits, and fortunes, and thus by degrees we lessen in our attachment till at length we no more than acknowledge a sameness of species." In other words, the family is the basic unit the most effective unit. And the more you get away from the family and the county and the uh, state government to the federal government, the more remote you make it, the more dangerous you make it. Now, this was the argument of the anti-federalists, and it was an excellent argument. I'm not saying that they necessarily were right in every aspect, but... We have to see that uh, the power to do good is the power to do evil. There is no restraint on power in the final analysis except a moral restraint. That's right. 
if you have a gun in your hand, that's power. You can use it to kill a man or you can use it to defend your home. There's a world of difference between the two. Absolutely. And the one who decides that is the person who holds the gun. So the essence of uh, the solution is that you have to strengthen the person, the family, the community. And this is a religious task. And this is why John Adams at one point said that the Constitution was worthless without a moral community, without a Christian community. When that happens, the state will be disempowered because family government is much more vital than state government or even church government, for Mm -hmm. that matter. Another thing that people need to remember, too, Rush, is that, as you pointed out, all human authority is derivative. Uh, There's no irrevocable human authority. And that's why if we recognize that the authority is ultimately vested in the sovereign God mm-hmm. who has only um, immediate authorities, not immediate authorities. He is the only immediate authority. The others are subject to him. Then, of course, and of course this was fought, uh, this whole idea was fought during the Puritan uh, time of the Puritan Commonwealth and the wars in the 1620s, 30s, 40s in England and even uh, in our the, the War of Independence. But we need to get back to that idea that the rulers stand under God and under his law rather than above them. I think something we have to remember about the anti-federalists too, about all opposition, political opposition, that they can perform an invaluable service. The anti-federalists lost in the sense that they they were not able to prevent the Constitution from being ratified. But they made such a case for the dangers of the Constitution that it was necessary for the proposal to be made that, uh, and several cases made their ratification contingent on um, the introduction in Congress of a Bill of Rights. Precisely. And so they're really res- they were really responsible for the, the the Bill of Rights. That's right. And where would we be today if if we had our present government without a Bill of Rights? That's right. So they performed an invaluable service that that perhaps was not necessary to the government of Washington and and Adams and the uh, for some time because they had no thoughts of violating yes. those rights, but. As the years have gone by and we've gotten farther and farther away from uh, uh, the original spirit of the Founding Fathers and their view of government and we've gotten to more status government, imagine where we'd be if the federal anti-federals hadn't yeah. been yeah. able to get the Bill of Rights installed. That's exactly right. So they performed an invaluable yes, service they did. If for that alone. I think maybe in the last Journal of Christian Reconstruction, didn't William Graves have an article on that about the Bill of Rights. Maybe it was the one before that. It was an outstanding article article. on that very point. Um, That's right, there would not be. He is an outstanding lawyer. Yes. Has been a state senator. And he writes with a full knowledge of the uh, law and the legal decisions and ramifications. Incidentally, he's got an excellent article in the upcoming journal on uh, the case for curbing the federal courts. So... Mm-hmm. Very good. Oh, that would be interesting. It, it's. I think that's something that um, that needs more attention 
I don't think we could ever do anything dramatic with our government and turning it around until we have some judicial reform. We've got to curb the power of the judiciary to be creating laws yes. on their own. We've got to make them responsible. Uh, that's something that needs to be in- addressed. And I think there would be a tremendous amount of public support because people, um, well, if you look at lawyer shows, even on television, they're always showing the abuse of judicial um, discretion. That's right. And I think people understand the problems with judges who do what they want and think they're above the law. And I, I, th- I think that th- there could be a, a widespread support for right. extensive judicial reform. We need people like Robert Bork, and I won't go into that whole historical fiasco, to say, we're not going to create legislation over here. If you want to write law, you do it over in the legislature. We will interpret the law, but we're not going to do your dirty work for you. And, of course, that's been happening uh, for the last 30 years. The Supreme Court has been doing the dirty work for the liberals Mm -hmm. because what they couldn't pass legislatively, they enacted judicially by the Supreme Court. Something else that I think is is interesting, I, I... read something, I never heard any more about it. I read that Colorado had passed, I believe it was Colorado, had passed a law saying that any federal statute that uh, the state of Colorado was expected to enforce had to be accompanied by uh, a constitutional reasoning on why if they had the authority to impose that. I don't know. Sometimes states pass these things... um, um, and they have no intention of following through on them. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a point that, that ought to be pursued. We assume the government can do anything it wants, including, I think, a classic example is a 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. Yeah. Um, if, they can, if they can pass a national speed limit, they can do, do anything. anything. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, as some of the Christian state legislators, and I won't mention their names, say what we need to do is wean ourselves off federal money. And if they say, if you don't enact this federal requirement, then we're going to cut off your money supply. Well, the states should stand up and say, fine. You know, we don't need your money. We're not going to use your money. You don't want to give us highway money? Fine. We'll do it in another way. In fact, I know of a very good legislator in the state of Ohio. He's presently, I believe, uh, he's an incumbent running for his seat, a good Christian man whose name I won't mention. But uh, he's presently involved in getting the Ohio legislature to pass that very sort of legislation. In fact, I think they did uh, last year, a couple of years ago. But that's precisely correct. I mean, states need to wean themselves off federal money. Then they'll be able to wean themselves off federal regulation. One of the things that uh, the storing cites in his book, and I must say I quote it favorably, but he doesn't agree with the purpose of the proclamation. It was by the Massachusetts General Court in 1776, and this is what they said. That piety and virtue, which alone can secure the freedom of any people, be encouraged, and vice and immorality suppressed. The great and general court have thought fit to issue this proclamation, commanding and enjoining it upon the good people of this colony that they lead sober, religious, and peaceable lives, avoiding all blasphemies, contempt of the Holy Scriptures and of the Lord's Day, and all other crimes and misdemeanors, all debauchery, profaneness, corruption, venality, 
all riotous and tumultuous proceedings and all immoralities whatsoever and that they decently and reverently attend the public worship of God. Unquote. In other words, they did recognize that power needed control and the society could not control or uh, deal with power unless the people themselves had a godly perspective. That's exactly right. I also wanted to recommend a book. I was thinking, Rush, a book I read about three months ago, a brand new book by Daniel Dreisbach called Religion and Politics in Early America. He demonstrates how that uh, so many of the state constitutions discuss the necessity of Christian morality and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Of course, been changed since the early 19th century now, but he demonstrates that by and large the people were God-fearing people and the legislators were God-fearing individuals who recognized the very same thing that you just mentioned there. Well, one of the uh, ideas that we have dropped was a basic aspect of the belief of every American in those years. Namely, the church and state both had a ministry under God. They saw civil office as a ministry and they saw church office as a ministry. And both had a duty to create a godly society. Otherwise, there would be no check on power, no check on man. Mm -hmm. And you would have a society running riot, Mm -hmm. suicidal, immoral, and destroying whatever liberty was provided. One of the evils of our time is the kind of mindless conservatism that says all we have to do is to get back to the Constitution and all will be well in the United States. The Constitution is simply rules for procedure in the operation of a government. The terms of office, the kinds of office, and so on. There are no moral laws, there are no laws of any kind that govern human society. It's just a procedural... uh, Manual, as it were, for setting up a federal government for the United States. That's right. And I dealt with that in, uh, oh, I think two or three articles in an issue in the, of the journal a few years ago. Yeah. Interesting, I never got a letter commenting on those articles. But my whole point was that to expect the Constitution to provide a moral framework or in any way be a champion of anything is ridiculous. It's only an instrument whereby a federal government can be set up, terms of office assigned, and certain general uh, restraints put on the federal government. No more. That's right. Everything else in the way of morality, in the way of character, has to come from the people. It can come from nothing else. And it's only as we have declined in character that the federal government has grown in its powers because we have transferred the powers from ourselves to Washington. You know, we need to understand there's no safety in the Constitution. No. 
Um, it's like a knife. It can be used to cut bread or it can be used to stab somebody. It's going to be dependent upon the uh, the will and the morality and the faith of the people who use it. So I don't think we should be so concerned as some of these conservatives are on, on constitutional alterations. Uh, I'm not saying that that's totally out of the question, but we need to be concerned most of all with individual Mm-hmm. Uh, alterations, which by means of regeneration, of course, and subordination to God's law word. Well, the country is changing in remarkable ways, and most people are unaware of it. One good thing the media did with respect to the Republican and Democratic conventions of 1996 was to call attention to the fact that these in no way resembled the conventions of 30, 40, 50 years ago, which were wild affairs uh, with uh, intense dissent and people uh, almost uh, ready to fight over their opinions. That's right. The, the conventions were both cut and dried. Anyone who might uh, dissent was barred from the platform. Everything was well scripted. Yes, it was all well scripted. Uh, In fact, it was dishonest in that uh, there were a great many votes cast uh, and uh, delegates who should have been voting for Forbes, for Buchanan, and for others. None of that appeared. It was discreetly screened out so that nobody would remember the differences. The differences were obliterated. The people who came there did not come as delegates, but as spectators Absolutely. for a performance put on both by, uh, by both parties That's right. for, for the television audience. That's right. Now, that has no resemblance to anything that represents uh, historic American uh, conventions. We didn't have conventions always, we had caucuses, but they were efforts to uh, bring differing perspectives together and hammer out a conclusion. Now the conclusion was predetermined and no dissent was permitted. Well, I think the 1996 Republican and Democratic conventions were excellent evidences of the loss of freedom in this country. I mentioned before Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He points out, Rush, about the Lincoln-Douglas debates and how if we were to actually have debates like that today, most people with the mentality of of, uh, modern society wouldn't care to watch them because there was very in-depth, profound substance to those debates. As we're taping this, the presidential and vice-presidential debates are yet future. You'll hear the tapes after them, but um, I'll make the prediction that very little of any substance is going to be said. The most important thing is how the president's hair is done, how Bob Dole, what Bob Dole's suit looks like. If somebody says something stupid, yeah, that's what people... Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Who's going to make a gaffe rather than... Right. Uh, that's exactly right. But well, it's, it's symbol uh, uh, over substance. Is the oh, they're word. even talking about uh, they can't, uh, their eyes can't wander. Yeah. George Bush looked at his watch. Yeah. And they can't do things like that. So it's it's yeah. an, it's entirely in the. And both candidates have been sequestered 
practicing and they've been having people because they don't want Bob, you know, the one Bob Dole to look angry and they don't want uh, they want the President Clinton to look. It's all appearance. Do, do you it's, realize it's too bad that our, all of our politics is is appearance? Do you realize? Um, Postman pointed out a number of the men that were presidents in this country couldn't have be elected today, and Rush, you pointed it out, because uh, some were rather very corpulent men. Uh, Lincoln was, of course, uh, was lanky and ugly. Let's let's be pitched voice. voice, exactly. Well, um, starring Sites Patrick Henry uh, at the Virginia Convention for ratification, sitting in Richmond. And he said, What right have they to say, we the people? My political curiosity, exclusive of my anxious solicitude for the public welfare, leads me to ask, who authorized them to speak the language of we the people instead of we the states? States are the characteristics and the soul of a confederation. If the states be not the agents of this compact, it must be one great consolidated national government of the people of all the states, unquote. So Patrick Henry saw the weakness very clearly. Yes. And uh, over the years since the ratification of the Constitution, that expression in the preamble has been a sore spot with many. It has been the subject of much uh, concern in various court decisions. Why we the people? That's right. Instead of we the states. Well, thank God at least we still have a residue of states' rights in the Electoral College. Uh, individuals don't elect presidents in this country, although they yes. think they do. Uh, states do. Um, but that demonstrates a mentality that is largely lost in modern culture. And that was a very good point, Rush, uh, about uh, individuals rather than states there, and it was a, a valid point, I think, that Henry made. Well, the anti-federalists had another point that was important. They knew there were problems in the United States under the Articles of Confederation. But they did not feel that the problems were mainly caused by an ineffective central government. In other words, people can be responsible for problems. This was a point not uh, explored by scholars. It was not a stronger central government, Patrick Henry felt, and others as well. But time and hard work that would correct all the evils that had arisen and all the problems that uh, existed. In fact, they said that the true cause led to problems that were not uh, governmental, and I quote, Unhappily for us, immediately after our extrication from a cruel and unnatural war, luxury and dissipation overran the country, banishing all that economy, frugality, and industry 
which had been ex uh, exhibited during the war. Again, uh, Richard Henry Lee wrote in 1787, I fear it is more in vicious manners than mistakes in form, that That's is right. form of government, yes. that we must seek for the causes of the present discontent, unquote. And another said, May not our manners be the source of our national evils? May not our attachment to foreign trade increase them? Have we not acted imprudently in exporting almost all our gold and silver for foreign luxuries? It is now acknowledged that we have not a sufficient quantity of the precious metals to answer the various purposes of government and commerce. And without a breach of charity, it may be said that this deficiency arises from a want of public virtue yes. in preferring private interest to every other consideration. Well, in other words, they were saying it's a moral failure. This is the problem. Can you imagine, though, today any of the two major presidential candidates or congressman standing up and pointing their bony finger in the face of the people and say the problem isn't the government as much as it is our society, yes. wickedness and evil in society. They wouldn't get reelected. Well, our time is nearly over. Do you have any summary comments you'd like to make, Andrew, Mark? Well, I think Christian individuals have to assume many of the responsibilities the civil government now holds to take back those things. Then eventually they'll be able to wean themselves off the civil government in health, education, welfare, and um, um, all sorts of other activities. And, of course, living a godly life and pressing the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ and his law word in every sphere of life relentlessly, and then the state eventually, by the Spirit of God, will be forced to capitulate. Well, I think a, a, the Constitution was a, a safeguard to Americans' liberties. But even if we could reverse the trend, that won't solve a lot of our problems. That is more a moral pro problem. And going back in time doesn't solve the, the problem where you need to look to the future. That's right. And that involves limiting the government, but it's it's not all a constitutional problem, as you say. Yeah, well, we don't believe in political salvation, so we don't believe that simply changing the form of government or cleaning out Congress or the presidency is going to solve the problem. That should be a result of the solution of the problem. And, it, and it's a means to stop evil men by holding them to the Constitution. That's right. Well... I think Dr. Storing raised an important issue in his book. I believe it's an issue that has to be thought through once again. It points to the very, very great importance of individuals, families, churches, society at large, because the basic reform, the basic restraint upon the power to do evil has to come from the individual. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you.